we'll be reading from Psalm 84. Psalm 84, as we uh, begin our new sermon series uh, this morning. This is God's word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is God's word. morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series on today on seeking God, but we're shifting the emphasis for the second half of the series. For the first half, we looked at the life of King Josiah, and we were focused on thinking about what are the evidences, the marks that come out of a life that is set on seeking God. The second half, we want to be a little more practical. How do we actually do this? What are the and some of the nuts and bolts of how you go about seeking God. And we want to understand what this looks like, not for someone with loads of time on their hands, not for someone who's been able to get away for a weekend retreat, but we want to focus on what this looks like for busy people in the Philadelphia suburbs, people with high-intensity, high-demand jobs, people who are raising families, who are running in 20 different directions at the same time, people who feel like they can hardly breathe. What does it look like practically for us to seek God? And the first thing that we're going to consider is something that usually gets overlooked, but it's something that is absolutely necessary before we look at anything else, and that is desire. That if you are going to seek God first, it sounds really obvious, first you have to want to. You have to believe that he's worth your time and energy out of all the other things that you could be doing. Now, on its own, desire is not enough. You also have to have some tools to work with. We'll look at some of those tools in the following weeks. But any tool that you have is worthless if you don't want to use it. If you don't want to use it, you might as well not have it. And so it's that combination, having tools but the desire that comes first, it's that combination that actually leads to hope in your spiritual life. I've been talking to a friend who's struggled to love his family well. He's really growing right now. He's been getting a lot of good input from a lot of people. And I love something that he said this last week. We've been talking about what is the practical difference that your faith makes 
to loving your family. He shot me a text afterward. He said, for maybe the first time in my life, I feel desire to change beyond just a wish, and it's within reach. I think that's incredibly hopeful. He just said that he wants to try. He wants to do more than just wish he could change. He wants more than just saying, well, wouldn't that be nice? Instead, he's saying, I'm experiencing that kind of desire where my wants are changing. It's the kind of hope that you get when you are reoriented your life toward God and a life with him more than you're oriented to anything else. And that new reorientation then flows into the lives of the people around you. So that's our focus for today on cultivating greater desire, on developing greater wanting, greater longing for God, because every one of us needs that. I need that. And we're going to look at this by asking three questions from Psalm 84. First, what exactly does the psalmist hunger for? What's he want? What does he desire more than anything else? Second, what difference, practical difference, does that desire make in life? And then third, how can we have that too? So what does he desire? What difference does it make? And how can we get that? Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And as you work your way through this psalm, you discover there's a lot of emphasis on a physical location. A lot of emphasis on the temple in Jerusalem. You can see it in there in verse 1, it's a dwelling place for God. Or verse 2, it's the courts of the Lord. Verse 3, it's the place where his altars are. Verse 4, it's his house, and so on. All through the psalm, you start to think, why? Why all this emphasis on a place? Well, you remember what we've been saying. The Old Testament's very physical. It shows you physically what is true spiritually. And so it's teaching you here that God wants to live with you. That's God's goal. It's teaching you that by giving you this picture. God's got a house, and his house is in close proximity to other people. So his people have houses in Jerusalem, in Zion. He has a house there as well, and you can find him there. You can find his presence there. And that's what makes his house so special. It's why the psalmist wants to be there. It's why he longs to be there. It's not that the architecture is lovely. It is. But that's not what the draws the psalmist. It's the individual who makes his home there in that house who is lovely, and it's his loveliness that then makes the house lovely. How do you know that? Because verse 2, the psalmist sings to a person, not to a building. He sings to the living God, not to an impersonal force, not to an idea, a philosophy, a way of life. He sings to a person that he expects can actually hear him singing. A person who wants him to be there, who wants to hear from him. How do you know that? Because verse 3, there are altars in God's house. There's one altar for sacrifice and one altar for incense as you read through the Old Testament. And so one of those altars lets you ask for God's forgiveness and receive it so that God is not angry that you're there with him in his house. It's the altar for sacrifice. The other altar lets you offer up prayers to him, the altar for incense. 
if you think about it, you realize God doesn't need those altars for himself. They're, they're, they're not there for him. They're there for you. Which means that he put them there because he wants you there. He put them there in order to welcome you so that you could come and see him, be with him, talk with him. So that you could make his dwelling place your dwelling place, his house your house. That you could be there even more than the wild birds build homes there. That's what God wants. And you hear the psalmist saying that's what he wants. He wants to be there so badly. Longs for it so much that he's faint. He's at an end of himself. He's absolutely spent, worn out with longing. He's not there physically at the moment. He's longing to be there. Desperately wanting to be there. See, when you have something, you don't long for it, you enjoy it. He's longing. So what is he doing? He's thinking reflecting, remembering what's it, what it's like to be where God is, remembering what it's like to be with God. Imagines the altars there, can see the birds nesting. His longing is pulling up these pictures in his mind. And his longing is doing something else. It makes him sing for joy. Your version might say cry out. Both of those are right. Because the word has this sense of exultation, of exulting, of giving a ringing cry, of shouting for joy. Longing for God does what? It sparks joy in him. Joy that moves him to actually engage God personally, to sing to him, to relate to him. Have you had that kind of time in your own life? time when God was so close, a friendship was so special with him that it just brought you joy. You'd find yourself walking down the street just smiling for no reason at all, just starting to turn to him throughout the day, talking to him, singing. Have you had that kind of time? I'm hoping that that's what the kids have while they're away. Maybe you had that time in high school too or in college. Maybe after a retreat or a really good time of prep, prayer and praise. If you have had that, you know how wonderful that time is. But you also know that it can slip away from you. That that longing can fade. That it gets clogged up over time. That over time you're not imagining what it's like to be with God because you're imagining other things instead. Things that take over your imagination and distract you and they crowd, Jesus, uh, crowd God out. Jesus told a parable like that. He talked about how the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things can choke his word right out of your life. How you can get consumed with other things, things you worry about, things that you want. And those things start to be important in your mind. They become more special to you than God is. And when that happens, you slowly lose passion for him. You lose desire, you lose hunger for him. The thought of being with him no longer sparks joy because now something else does. Maybe it's a clean house, successful kids, quiet afternoon with no interruptions. Those things creep in and you spend time thinking about them, dwelling on them, longing for them. And you start to long for those more than you long for God. And the psalmist pushes back against that drift and he says, no. Nothing else gets me going 
as much as wanting to be with God. And he shows us that this is normal. It's not just for a few super spiritual people, but all of God's people would sing this psalm. This is a life that all of us could have, life that we should all want to have. It's a life that just makes sense. You think about everything else that we could ever want in life, everything else that we could ever dream about comes from God. It's all less than he is. So logically, how could those lesser things, they're good things, they do bring joy, how could those lesser things spark more joy in us than God himself does? It doesn't make any sense, but it happens. Those things become more joy-filled for us because our imagination gets broken. Start to let yourself imagine that those things can compete with God. You let yourself imagine those things are more important, more special than the God who gave them to you. You let yourself believe that the joy that they bring will last longer than the joy of actually knowing him. And part of what the psalm does is it works to reset your imagination so that you start to long for joy that will never end. How do you do that? Point two. Psalm shows you the real practical difference that having this kind of desire makes as you live in this world. Verse five, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. There's a lot of word pictures there that as you read through it real quickly doesn't becomes a little more confusing so let's unpack some of it what does it mean verse 5 that you have a highway in your heart blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to zion remember here what we studied last year about this same time that when scripture talks about your heart it's talking about the control center of your life and that what is in your heart is what then guides you through life. So if you have the road to Zion in your heart, the road to where God himself is, then you have set your entire life on moving toward him. And in that sense, your whole life becomes this pilgrimage to get to him. That's how some of the other Bible versions will translate this passage. It's taking that longing that the psalmist has already talked about and it's spreading it out across the length of your entire life. What's it mean then, this Valley of Baca? This is the only place in Scripture that this shows up. It's not even clear that there's an actual physical location somewhere in Israel called the Valley of Baca. But the word Baca can have a couple different forms. It can either be a noun or it can be a verb. When it's a noun, it means a balsam tree. And the thing about balsam trees, I don't know this, I have to look this up. The thing about balsam trees is that they actually drip sap. And so you have this picture of something dripping, dripping moisture. That's the noun form. The verb form means to weep. So both of them mean kind of the same thing. The picture that you're being given here is that you are walking through this valley of tears, this valley of weeping while you're on pilgrimage. Very difficult place, very dry, very hard, and it just causes weeping 
because of what you're going through. So what is the valley of weeping? It's life in a broken world where you end up weeping, where you just want to find some good refreshment in this world, in good, normal things, and you don't. It's life when relationships are filled with tension that shouldn't be. It's life when romance fizzles that you thought never would. It's life when your children keep pushing back against you all day long. It's life when your parents don't understand you. Life when your career stalls. Your job is boring. Your boss is unreasonable. Your coworkers don't like you. It's life when you hate all of the classes you have this semester. When you study late for an exam and the prof asks you questions that you didn't even begin to study for. It's life when something is always breaking. Your house, your car, your body. When you get wrinkles and you pack on the pounds, you can't run up the stairs like you once did. It's life when you go out to dinner or you go on vacation or you go out for your birthday and nothing quite lives up to what you were hoping for. It's life when inflation eats away your savings and you worry if you'll ever be able to retire. This is Baca, the valley of weeping, life that just saps your joy and energy, that bogs you down and makes you want to quit. The psalmist does not say here that it's your fault you're weeping. It might be, it might not be. What he says is that if you live on this earth, this is the valley that you will walk through. And so the question is then, what gets you through Bacah? What gets you through life? You realize there's a couple different options. Option one, just gut it out. Just put up with it, just endure. Life is disappointing. Sorry, that's the way it is. So don't hope for too much. You could try being a Buddhist. If you don't desire, you can't be disappointed. Lower your expectations and learn to be miserable. That's option one, a life of no joy. Option two, double down on figuring out how to get what you are missing out on. So change your life. Go to the gym and work out. Change jobs, change neighborhoods, change your broker. Change your friends. Find a new relationship. Pour yourself into that. In other words, believe that the power to live through Baca comes from changing the valley somehow. And that if you can only get yourself into the right valley, then you'll have joy. It's option two. Find a new way to satisfy your longings that have been disappointed. Option three. Long for God himself even more than you long for a change in the valley. That's the option the psalmist takes. Verse 6 starts off with, as you go. If your heart is set on making it to God, then while you're on the journey, as you go, you're going to find that there's water for you in that valley either springs or pools, some sense of there being an oasis there that has a restorative effect on you. So that verse 7, you go from strength to strength. You get stronger. 
the valley itself doesn't have to change for you to change in the valley. God will meet you there. God will provide what you need so that you can keep walking through it. In other words, no one gets to skip Baka. Some of us get more of it, some of us get less, but everyone walks through it. The real difference is not the form that Baka takes. The difference is in what you rely on as you go, as you walk through it. And so it's not the places that you walk through that control the outcome of your life. It's that inner intention, the internal desire of the person who's going through it. It's the longing to be with God that transforms the things that cause weeping. It's the process of learning to find ultimate joy in God instead of finding that ultimate joy in something else. And that's important to hang on to here because the psalmist is not walking through a joyless life. He's full of joy. He's not seeking God so that God will then change the valley of weeping. God might. But that's not the psalmist's goal. The psalmist's goal is to find his joy in God since that's something that can't be taken away. And it's that joy in God that then brings water to the valley of weeping. You get real joy because you get God, which is what your soul was longing for most. See, that's the promise of verse 7. That if this desire is in your heart here on earth, the desire to be with God, then you will appear before God in Zion. You will be with him forever. That's what God guarantees you. That if you want him, you actually get him. A lot of things in life that are not guaranteed. This one is, verse 7, each one who has this pilgrimage, the set in their heart, each one appears before God in Zion. Notice here what God is doing. He doesn't say to you, seek me, desire me, because you should. Because that's what good people do. Instead, God gives you reasons to seek him. He tells you why you should, why this is a good idea, why it's worth your investment. Doesn't promise to give you everything you've ever wanted, that's the prosperity gospel. Doesn't promise to change Baka. Promises to provide for you in Baka so that you get stronger and stronger as you go through weeping. If this is the God you seek, if this is the God I seek, life can be absolutely nothing that you want it to be, and you'll end up stronger, and you'll have joy. So then point three, how? How can this be true of us, especially if we've desired something more than we've desired him? See, it's one thing to know what's true, that you should desire this, you should desire him. It's another thing to actually have that desire inside. I know, I am firmly convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that in order for me to lose weight, I have to burn up more calories, use up more calories than I take in. I know that. I don't lose a whole lot of weight. 
because I don't desire that. I don't want that. My problem is not with knowledge. My problem is with wanting, with desire. So what do we do if we found our joy in something other than God? If our longing has moved away from him to something in this world, is it possible to rekindle desire once that flame goes out? Or, if it's not out, is it possible to have that become even greater? To grow until you couldn't possibly want anything more than you want the Lord. Here's how, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Notice the logic here. Verse 10, what? There is no better place to be than with the Lord. One day with him is better than an infinite number without him. It's better just to be a doorkeeper. What would that mean? It means that you're just on the threshold. You're not really in the building. It would be better to be on the threshold of his house, to be near him, than it is to have a comfortable life away from him. No better place to, than, to be than to be with him. Why? Verse 11. Because of all the benefits that come from being with him. There's four here. He's a sun. He's the source of life for you. He's a shield. He protects you from what would destroy you. He bestows favor. It's the same word here as grace. He bestows grace. It's something that our world doesn't know anything about. Our world knows legalism. We know how to earn someone's good approval. And we know shame. We know how to be crushed when someone doesn't think that we were good. But where in this world can you find grace? Where you're treated better than you deserve. Where you're loved and embraced despite what you've earned. You don't find that in this world. You do find it with God. He's life for you, protection for you, gives you grace, and he bestows honor, glory. He invites you to share in his glory, his specialness. Why is it better to be with God than to be anywhere else? Because when you're with him, you get life, protection, grace, and glory. Now, how does that help us to actually desire him? Look halfway down verse 10. The psalmist says, I would rather. I would rather be with God, just near him. Even for just a little bit, I'd rather be with him than anywhere else for any length of time. What is he doing? He's comparing two things. He's saying, this is what it's like to be with God. And I don't find that anywhere else. I don't find that in the tents of the wicked. That's the key to increasing your appetite for God. That's the key to cultivating desire for him. Look at what you most want in this life. Look at what you think will get you through the valley of weeping. And then compare it to God on these four levels. Ask how it stacks up to God in the areas of giving you life, protection, grace, and glory. 
me give you a personal example, show you what I mean. One of the things that I try to lean on to get through the Valley of Baca, I know this is wrong, but it's one of the things I wrestle with, is something that I call Miller time. Now, I'm pretty sure I've never had a Miller. Please do not offer to change that experience for me. I won't take you up on it. More of an IPA guy. But I understand what Miller time is all about. I understand why it's so appealing. Miller time was an ad campaign I know this for Miller Beard, started back in the early 1970s, from what I can find. It was about focusing yourself on this time to relax after a long day. It's about doing what you really want instead of what everyone else expects you to do. I long for that. That's what I think will get me through Baca. It sums up one of the idols that I have fought with, I'd say, all my life. In that sense, it, it, it's the same as I deserve a break today. You could call it McDonald's time as well, it just doesn't work as well. It's that sense of I worked really hard today and now I deserve some downtime. And I really don't care how hard I have to work, I don't mind putting in long days. As long as once I'm done, now I get to enjoy myself. And once I'm done, nothing is allowed to get in the way because I earned this time to check out. And so Miller time does not have to be about having a drink. It can be, but you can escape in a lot of things. It can be about eating, watching a movie, reading a book, playing a video game. It doesn't really matter what I'm doing. What's important is why I'm doing it. It's about finding a way to escape having to deal with life for just a little while, to feel numb, to baka in some way. And so you realize that the things that I'm doing are not necessarily bad. But the reason that I'm doing them has nothing to do with having my heart set on pilgrimage. I'm not eating, drinking, watching, reading, playing out of gratitude for God, to God this God who delights to give good things to his people. But I'm doing them as a way of dealing with hard things, as a way of escaping from the valley of weeping. I'm doing them hoping to get life, protection, grace, and glory from them. And so I will find myself early in the day starting to think about what I'm going to do at the end of the day after work to get a break. Or I'll find myself thinking about, you know, in a couple weeks I'm going to get away. And I start imagining how that's going to be just, that, that's going to be great. It's going to be so strengthening. And I start turning these things over and over in my mind, even though I'm not doing them yet. I'm imagining what it'll be like. What, I'm teaching myself what to long for by thinking about what they're going to give me. And so the psalmist comes along and he says, okay, Bill. You're putting a lot of time and energy into this. So let's compare them. Go ahead. Evaluate Miller time to see how it's doing. To see how well it's coming through for you to justify the amount of time and energy that you're putting into this. This is the part I would invite you to do as well. It doesn't take a ton of time. It's for busy people. But this is part of how we learn to desire God more. Take whatever it is that you have set your heart on that you think will get you through the valley of weeping 
and ask it some hard questions. Miller Time, when have you ever been a source of life to me? You've promised an escape from life, but you haven't given life. I had to pay an awful lot to have you, paying time and money. But I don't come away strengthened from you when I have to return to Baco. Or Miller time, when have you ever protected me? When have you guarded my soul from what would weaken me? Sure, you say that you can let me dodge consequences, pretend they're not there, but that's only temporary. Because when I come back up for air, Baca is still there, and I have to face it again without you, all by myself. Miller time, when have you ever given me grace? When have you erased my failures so they're just gone? When have you treated me better than I deserve? You only let me feel good when I think I've earned the right to have a break. And when I indulge in you too much, I feel guilty and full of shame. Or Miller time, when have you ever made me feel more necessary, more helpful to others, more glorious as you help me run away from real life? When have you made me feel more fully human, more proud of what I've done, proud of what I've become, more able to hold my head up and feel good about myself? We all have our things that we rely on to deal with Baca. When I ask my things really hard questions, they always come up short. They just can't give me life or strength, and they leave me empty. Worse, they mean that I don't qualify for the kind of life and the promises that are in this psalm. They disqualify me from the kind of water that God provides in Baca. Verse 11 ends by saying that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And that's not me. Not when I rely on Miller time or my reputation or sexual experience or career or money or relationships or power or anything else apart from the Lord in order to get me through the valley of weeping. But there is one who has walked uprightly with 100% integrity. The one who is blessed, verse 12, because he fully trusts in God. Not 90%, not 98%, fully trusts in God. The one that verse 9 calls the anointed. That's shorthand for the anointed one of God the one that God empowers to save his people. The Hebrew word for anointed is where we get our English word Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. So Jesus Christ is Jesus, the anointed one of God, the one who can earn all the blessings of God because he fully trusted God, and he can now share those blessings with his people. How does this one stack up against what you've trusted in life? Run through all of the same things we just did. Talk to him like you just talked to the other things you trusted in. Jesus, you did give me life. 
spiritual life now and eternal life with you forever. You gave me life by giving up your own life. You sacrificed for me instead of asking me to sacrifice for you. Jesus, you protected me from the wrath of God for all the times that I've longed for something else other than God. You threw yourself in front of his wrath. You absorbed it all for me. Jesus, you give me grace I could never earn every moment of every day. You don't hold my sins against me. My lack of integrity. You don't treat me like I deserve. Instead, you smile at me. You help me because you like me. Jesus, you do even more. You lift me up to share in your glory. You give me your reputation as a man of integrity, which I will now share with you forever so that I'm never ashamed to come and talk to you. I will not be ashamed to stand before God. How does Jesus stack up? It's no contest. Compare him with anything else that you would trust in, and he wins hands down. How do you develop desire? Do this. Compare him with anything else, and you'll find he offers you what you can't find anywhere else. He offers you everything that you need to go through Bacah. Do that. Compare him, and you'll find yourself starting to long for him more than you did before. Find yourself starting to call out to him with joy because of how good he is. Lord, we want hearts that want you. We want our hearts and our minds, our bodies, every bit of us, Lord, just longing for you, faint, because we can't find you near enough or close enough. Lord Jesus, be that anointed one who leads us to that greater desire. Lord, become greater in our own minds and in our own hearts. Show us, Lord, the things that we've trusted in wrongly that are unhelpful. And then, Lord, in your kindness and your graciousness, show us yourself and what you provide instead. In Jesus' name, amen.